Episode 16 of the Long Walk to Nowhere podcast. My name is Patrick DeButler, and I'm joined by the author of Long Walk to Nowhere, Alan Munn. Hello, Alan. Hello, Patrick. So today we wanted to discuss a few um, subjects as we continue the podcast in the form of doing conversations between you and I on on different subjects. And on today's uh, podcast, I wanted to begin with cultural perceptions and, and religion in Zimbabwe. And I know you write about it in your book, and I was certainly, it's not a topic I'm an expert um, uh, in at all, but it's something I've always been very fascinated by. And I was wondering if you could share with me and with some of our listeners today your, your cultural perceptions and in Zimbabwe and around religion and, and culture. Yes, well, I, I can't say that I'm a, an expert either. Um, you know, my knowledge is restricted really to... Um, being an African myself, having been born in the country and being interested in in, in, in the spiritual healers and the ancestral worship that the Shona people mainly um, uh, prescribe to. Uh, and of course, uh, when I was doing my uh, movement for democratic change, when I was a, a chairman of, uh, of the movement for democratic change, uh, I had to do a fair amount of research into the rural areas to obtain uh, voter opinion. Because, um, you know, to get to these people, uh, um, you, you couldn't phone them or, 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 or there was no internet or anything like that. So you just had to go into the bush and, and see them. And, of course, in so doing, you you know, one learned a lot about how they, how they, they thought and so on. And, of course, the, the Nanga or spiritual healer, uh, is known and recognised uh, as a very important part of of, of the Shona religion, and, and and the young people, the, the, the apprentices to the Nanga are called the Tsika Mutanda, and um, they they are very carefully chosen young men who who accompany the, the spiritual healer over years, and eventually at an older age become a, a healers themselves. Um, so, so that that's the basis of of, of the Shona of the Shona religion. It, it's it's an ancestral worship, really. And um, uh, but it's there. The, I think about twenty five percent of the Shona people do practice Christian religion, um, and of course that all came from um, sort of a blend of, of a monotheism and, and the veneration of the ancestors. Um, in the Shona custom, the god, there is a god, and his name is Mwari, and he's omnipotent because, you know, he, he's a remote kind of a person. And the ancestors and the other spirits serve as intermediaries between the Mwari, the god, and the people. Um, and at the top of this, the hierarchy are, are the, the Mohondoro, and, and that, that's the big spirit, the, you know, the, the one that Mboya uh, Nahanda was a part of, and the, the, they are the spirits of the dead clan founders and the kings who watch over entire clans and regions of the Shona people as a whole. 
Um, so that's basically how, how it works. For example, if, if, if someone died, a uh, recently deceased person, uh, their spirit doesn't become uh, uh, what's called a mudzimu uh, until the, 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 there's a ceremony, a ceremony that, that the family have. Uh, I think it's about a year after the death. And um, it's, it's called the uh, uh, Kurova Guva ceremony, usually held, you know, in the village where where the, the person uh, lived, and, and 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 this ceremony invites invite the spirit to return to the family and watch over them as an ancestor. So so the spirit is now an ancestor, and they invite that spirit back to take care of them and watch over them. Um, there, are, there are a few complications. You know, those who die childless or very young cannot become uh, Vadzimu because they have no direct descendants. And, and they become a sort of wandering spirit, uh, a shavi. And, and, and that is, you know, can, can be a good spirit or a bad spirit. But they will communicate with humans through spiritual mediums. Yes, so, so so the um ancestors and spirits serve as intermediaries between um Mwari and the people, is that right? That, that's correct. And each medium can become possessed uh, by one by one by a specific spirit. And, and and then, you know, that that medium takes on the authority and the social role of that spirit. Um you know, the the old Shona kings were called Mambo. Mambo, it's a lovely name, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. sort of like a name like Sikuru, yeah. which, uh, which is a, a term of respect, and Mambo could mean chief, um, and, and, they, and they were considered uh, to be mediums uh, of, of God himself, of Mwari himself. And it, if I remember correctly, also, the, the Shona are, are a Bantu people, aren't they, originally, from, yes, from South, yes. South they Africa? Yes, all, all, they all, you know, originated from, from, from East Africa, you know. Mm-hmm. That's, yes, that's where they, they are Bantu origin. Because the, the only other thing, I, I, I remember going to an exhibition a few years ago, which was beautifully done at the British Museum, and one of the things I remember learning about them and which was really emphasized was that the Shona had um, excellent uh, pottery skills and musicianship. They were they were apparently very, very well noted musicians. And also, I believe ironwork was something that, that they were traditionally very um, in traditional Shona culture, of course. Oh, um, they, they're, they're incredibly creative. Um, exactly, very creative. Shona people, I mean, so, some of their art, I mean, I'm, I'm so lucky because I actually have some, so, some given to me by friends, uh, Shona friends, you know, after we, we, we lost, so-called lost the elections, and many of the people that I had become very close to were um, sculptors. And in fact, I, I had a... A rather large factory one in my group of companies and and what I did was i i, I um, um, opened up the 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 yards of this factory it was open air and provided all the electricity water and so on and and and, and created a sort of um, craft craft uh, area and and some of these young chaps and women came 
and uh, uh, you know uh, the, the things that they made from old scraps of metal they used to go around to all the old garages and broken cars and um, and, and their creations were just incredible and of course their Shona carvings are, are world renowned um, you know they're and, and can be very valuable because they carved out you know not just surfstone but verdite and, and other valuable stone that can only be found in 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 that part of Africa. Now, they're very creative. And of course, the women are incredible um, knitters and crocheters. And, you know, they can, uh, the, the, some of them are crammy work. It's, it's just unbelievable. And also, I'm guessing, like a lot of um, traditional African religions, when Christianity came, there must have been uh, a hybridized form of, of the Shona religion with Christianity, no? Um, Yes, I mean when, when I when I got married uh, to Josie, you know, I I, I wanted to have a Shona marriage, mm-hmm. and so we, we we got married in in, in a village oh, about fifty miles outside of the Victoria Falls area in Zimbabwe, and uh, the the man who married us was a, a spiritual healer who I'd known during the liberation struggle, and he was a very close friend of mine, and uh, he married us. And I was quite incredibly interested in, in, in the ceremony because, yes, you're so right. Uh, much of his terminology and his, his preaching, although in Shona, and, um, and I had an interpreter there for Josie because she couldn't speak any Shona, was, uh, was Christian. Um, I would say perhaps a third of the ceremony was conducted like a Christian marriage would be. And the rest was all done, you know, in the Shona custom through the medium of of, of bones and stones and and things like that. Very interesting. Um, Now, I think we we can pass on to to our our second subject, which is completely different, but I think equally interesting and something that we've mentioned really briefly, but I don't think we've ever gone into, into full enough detail is... The relationship of China with Zimbabwe, and I, I know you sent me some very interesting articles. This is something I'm naturally fascinated by, having done Chinese history for years at university and and being just fascinated by China's involvement around the world. Um, but I thought this would be really interesting to talk about with you because I know at the towards the end of your book as well, you you discuss China's involvement, not just in Zimbabwe but in Africa in general. And I was wondering if you could talk uh, to our listeners a little bit about that. Well, of course, China were, were very were very involved in the liberation struggle, and, and they were the ones who really helped uh, Mugabe uh, and, and the Zanla forces, um, and they provided uh, both moral support, and of course, they trained um, the Zanla cadres, and they provided arms, uh, a, lot, a lot of arms, and so on. Uh, so China was very um, involved in, in, in the 50s and 60s in Africa. Um, and, of course, uh, as, as, as Mugabe's um, administration became uh, less popular with the people because he, he, didn't, uh, he didn't deliver their aspirations and so on, um, he, he became uh, more against the West because the West were asking questions, you know, of him. And, of course, this pushed him further, further and further into the eastern side of things. And, of course, that's when China climbed in 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 a big way 
and took advantage of uh, of, of this huge gap that 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 uh, suddenly had had emerged because you know Mugabe needed support. He 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 had, he had no longer the, 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 the majority support of the people. So he needed, um, uh, you know, support in, in the form of, of uh, you know, of, of, of uh, I suppose, military support and, and force, and and that's that, that that really pushed him towards towards China. Um, China, uh, it's likely that you know the Western Sino skepticism, you know, will, will intensify as a as a result, for example, now of the coronavirus. Um, you know, because so many ambiguities surround China's professed um, policies, not just political, but financial, uh, you know, and, and many of them, uh, it is suggested that many of them hide behind smoke screens, you know, hide behind alternative or hidden agendas. And the strategies, you know, that, that China has in, in, in Africa, you know, it entices international suspicion and, and even anxiety, and also amongst the African people themselves. But that isn't to say that China isn't doing a good job in, in Africa. I think it is. I think it's doing a far better job than the West, quite frankly. Yes, and also it's the, this idea of Africa. If, if Africa is the future, I mean, it's the only continent in the world where demographics are growing at the moment. Um, Nigeria is set to overtake India within possibly about 20, 25 years, depending on, on who you listen to in, in terms of population. And who, who is investing for the moment the most into Africa certainly is China. I think um, that it, what I find very interesting in all these debates, there's at the, at the moment, I think there's a little bit of a worry that China is overextending itself in the same way that Japan did in the late 80s and early 90s before their recession really stopped uh, Jap Japan's economic takeover of the world. The question is, will that happen again? And what form will tensions between Americans and Chinese, um, what what form will they take in Africa? Because, you know, there was already a bit of tension around the naval bases in Djibouti on the East Coast. Um, the Americans, of course, have a very strong military presence on the East Coast of Africa. The French are just winding up a war um, in West Africa or trying to wind up in a, in a long war they've been in Mali. And yet China is involved in all of these parts of Africa. And um, I, I think it's a, it's a very interesting relationship because certainly from an infrastructure point of view, the Chinese are the ones worldwide who are doing the big investments at the moment. And certainly in Africa, their presence is everywhere. I mean, I, I was always fascinated to see just how many Chinese you'd see in Nairobi recently when I was there, um, you know, whereas the Americans would be generally either located in an embassy. It was certainly ones who were working in that capacity and an official would be located in an embassy or in military bases on the coast. Whereas the Chinese, you really saw them involved everywhere in the cultural life, um, in the infrastructure, of course. Well, it's the same in Zimbabwe. I mean, the, the Americans are, uh, rep, you know, are represented by words mainly. That's what the Africans think. You know, it's words. Actions are, are, are not as <laughs> are not as apparent. Whereas the Chinese, as you say, are, are very. But it was only after China's economic resurgence in the nineteen nineties that the country was. You know, was in an economic position to return to Africa. Oh, of course, and it's. But I think uh, from from a lot of of what I I study and find very interesting about China's relationship with Africa. Also, we mustn't forget that you know, of course, the African um, leaders 
uh, post the winds of change and you know the third world nation the Bandung conference in Indonesia in 55 were sending a lot of their leaders and their cadre to Beijing and so so China has a lot of experience dealing um, with Africa whereas America's reputation in Africa has been hurt uh, over time in many ways whether it's over Lubamba whether it's the role with it in Rwanda in the 90s and also I, I feel that in general the Americans don't seem to talk um, as often to the Africans or about the Africans in a way that, that the Chinese do. The Chinese conversation seems to be more long-term. And certainly there's an idea that the Chinese feel that they had to rebuild their country after the century of shame in the 19th century. And the whole of the 20th century for the Chinese was one of rebuilding. And they feel that they've managed to become so rich because they, they rebuilt. But China was in a very dilapidated and weak position, certainly when Mao took over after the war. And I think for a lot of the Chinese, they see Africa the same way. They see Africa... Yeah, I think, I think, Patrick, they need land, don't they? They do. You know, they've got such a vast population. And of course, Africa has, has, has enormous amounts of land, as we all know. Um, but there's an irony because, yes, I mean, many of the the elitist politicians in Zimbabwe went to China. I mean, the famous and iconic Tonga Gara, who was the Mugabe's general, you know, trained, he, he, all his military training was done in China. And, and, and there's no doubt that, that many African elitists understand the Chinese way of life very well. But there's an irony here because China, China lacked understanding, the understanding of the local, you know, people in Africa for a long time. They, they, they misunderstood the local workforce. Um, they didn't really understand and comprehend the incredible co corruption that exists in Africa. But they were very quick to learn. Uh, and today there, there are political analysts who claim that the 21st century will be China's century. And, and certainly in Africa, because um, they are there and they are making things happen. And, and China calls their policies, you know, a win-win philosophy. They don't talk about arms. They don't talk about war. They're always talking about development, unlike the Americans who seem to be investing in military aid and, and that sort of thing. But the Chinese, of course, are also doing that, but in a very subtle way. And I think the groundwork has been laid for China for a second try in Africa that's going to be really enormous, especially the One Belt, One Road System initiative. It's a project that, you know, that connects Asia to Europe and Africa. And they're building this vast network of overland corridors and shipping lanes and communications and, you know, stretches all across. And China are going to be very, very, very powerful in, in, in Africa. And they still are. And, of course, they, they're sending, because the, the main people, the main Chinese people, is, uh, the demographics that are interested, Chinese demographics interested in, in, in Africa are the are the poorer Chinese, because it's, it's much easier to, to make a living and, and work in Africa because, you know, the infrastructure is, is much more, is, is quite simple. You, you'll only find, you know, the elitist or the, 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 the higher up type of Chinese in, in, in the Western world, in American and Britain, the well-educated, uh, more wealthy Chinese, they, they tend to go for the, the Western world. Whereas in Africa, you, you know, there's, there's some peasants now living in, on the farms, the, the old white farms, and they're interbreeding with, the, you know, the African peasants. And, of course, what language are they speaking? You know, they're, they're not speaking Shona. And no, so no. it's very, very interesting how they're doing it.
No, and you're right. I mean, it's always very uh, fascinating when you're in East Africa and you're driving on a road to see all the Chinese families, the Chinese construction companies, um, Chinese families who are living on land that used to have been, you know, was either white colonial or was even African land. And then they're, they're living there and really setting up um, a base there. And I, I think... It's just a recolonization of it, Africa. It is, absolutely. You know, especially in Zimbabwe, there's no, none, no one has been liberated by the land grab that Mugabe had. Nobody except the Chinese and perhaps the political elite. Those chaps who were living like, you know, barons on, you know, land, you know, on these estates with delusions of grandeur, you know, they're just puppets of the regime. They aren't farmers. They don't produce anything. They don't employ people. Um, there's been no liberation from the land grabs. And the Chinese, of course, they're using the land, the, the, the political elite, as, as bargaining tools for the Chinese, you know. Oh, come to Zimbabwe, we'll give you this wonderful farm and you can bring all your peasants and farm it. And then, but then we want certain things from you, whatever it may be, money or arms or political control or political aid yeah it's it's all it's all it's all a farce patrick this this liberation of the people and the people are getting cross about this the people are not really happy you know no i i i don't think they are and and i'm just really interested to see where um where china's relationship with africa on the whole goes because africa will will need a lot of investment certainly does and and if you're looking at the south african economy which at the moment is really not doing well whereas it should be absolutely going gangbusters it's not and you know china is offering certainly from its point of view economic solutions of course with big rewards for beijing and for for the chinese themselves but at least they're making this initiative but what i find really interesting in terms of geopolitics is that even at the height of the Cold War, for example, you had a, a um, long relationship between America and the Soviet Union over Africa, and there was a lot of infrastructure from both sides. But now it really feels like the infrastructure is just coming from China. Um, I, I, my prediction, Patrick, is um, that China will succeed in Africa. Yes, I, I agree. I think it will as well. Whether it will succeed for the Africans, well, that's another matter but it will certainly succeed for China. I wanted to do one final topic, again, veering slightly away from China, but uh, an update on our last podcast where we talked about roads and we talked about Oriel College. Um, so there has been news on that front. So um, just for those of you who haven't listened, who haven't been following the story, the Cecil Rhodes, so the Oriel, Oriel College decided to keep the statue of Cecil Rhodes in place and they said they'll do it as part of their keep but explain policy. And now over 150 dons at Oxford University have said they'll refuse to teach um, at Oriel College because of this. So it's really interesting. So the story is actually taking on another form now to see who will win this, this debate and what will happen over it. Also, there was a very interesting side story at Magdalen College, one of the other great historic colleges at Oxford, where... Um, a portrait of the Queen had been re uh, removed from the common room at Magdalen College, one of the common rooms, um, because apparently it was too hurtful for a lot of students. And it was very interesting. Well, wasn't it an American student it was hurtful for? Yes. So I did a bit of digging into the story and I thought it was very interesting. It was an American student uh, who's from California 
whose father is, a, I think, quite a well-known um, attorney or lawyer in, in California, and who graduated from Stanford and came over to study here at Oxford. And he basically initiated this movement saying that it was not possible to keep uh, a portrait of the queen. It was a symbol of colonialism. It would be too difficult for students to look at it. And had it removed, he's also trying to come up with lots of other sort of American type initiatives of removing alcohol with meals at Oxford and so on and so forth. Anyway, so he's responsible for this this um, this thing, which I thought was rather ironic anyway, for uh, American students to come over and to be, to be lecturing about the removal of, of the Queen from Portugal, which is unheard of because, you know, if you go to university in the UK, you generally, for one reason or another, tend to have a portrait of either the queen or whoever the patron from the royal family is of the universities. And it's a very normal and fairly non-controversial thing. Um, so anyway, I thought it was really it's a cultural, It's a cultural, a British cultural understanding that has been there for years. And I wonder why this American man or boy or young uh, lady, whoever it is, um, is trying to change it. And, and what actually qualifies him to do so? Um, is he going to suggest that perhaps all statues of Abraham Lincoln in, in, in America are also torn torn down for some reason? Perhaps anything that, you know, in England today that has the words Christ or Jesus or king or queen must be removed because it's, it's, it's obnoxious for him to look at? This is, I mean, I can't understand the, the common sense of this, the logic of this, Patrick. Well, there's, um, there's quite, a, quite a good point from a British journalist who was saying that basically it's, it's really interesting because you'd expect a British university to be British in its culture, just in the same way that you'd expect an American university to be American in its culture, a French one in its own. I mean, on the other side of the debate, you know, in America there used to be I, I don't know how it is now, but I certainly remember reading that in, in the 50s and 60s, for example, in the US, the Americans would get quite upset when British institutions like the Carnegie Foundation and other ones were writing textbooks for American universities. And you'd have a big backlash saying, you know, from the American point of view, saying, why, why are we getting, you know, British people writing our, um, our curriculum and our books and so on and so forth. And this must be stopped. And so now the, the pennies drop. But what the I thought was very interesting in this article is that basically for an American student to come and do here is, is they want to create a monoculture where you have to remove all traces of, you know, Britishness or whatever uh, national. Uh, national uh, uh, is just to... in Britain that they want to create this monoculture or will it will it happen in America? Well, no, because I mean, the, the story is, is sort of being publicized at the moment. So we'd have to, to be seen. But, you know, it. it would be, you know, imagine if a British student went to an American university and said, oh, you know, I want you to remove the portrait of George Washington because, you know, he, he you know, he killed too many English soldiers. So, you know, for, for us, it's quite hurtful and you have to take it off. I don't think the Americans would even listen to it for a second. Yet, on the other hand, we're supposed to, in England, remove the constitutional head of our society because it's hurtful to an American student, you see. And, and that was part of the debate. So, so it's really interesting that, you know, now these are the debates, which certainly in terms of the press and attention they get seem to be overwhelming. Uh, yeah, the, the media is responsible for, in my mind, and having been in, in media all my life, um, I, I, I don't claim to be an expert, but I, I have had the experience. And I think, you know, this, the, 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 the media are not balanced in their... Um, the majority, I wouldn't say all of them, 
in their reporting these days. But going back to the, the Rhodes statue, you know, at Oriel, I, I just have one thing to say. If they want to tear the statue down, and this is what they think is the best thing to do, tear it down. Tear it down, break it up into a million pieces. But at the very same moment, you must stop the Rhodes Scholarship Scheme and not allow any more scholars to, to, to benefit from it because the money um, came from Cecil Rhodes and therefore it's, it's, it's not good money. So, yes, tear the statue down, but stop, stop the, um, the Rhodes trustees. And how many other one, uh, very famous people have all been Rhodes scholars? You know, well, I mean, in Americans too. The, the, the most famous recent example is, of course, uh, Bill Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar. Bill uh, Clinton. So, so I mean, Rhodes Scholarship. There's so many uh, people who are well known who received Rhodes Scholarships, but um, but it's 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 very interesting that the debate certainly because you know Oxford and Cambridge, whether people like it or not, and they do produce an overwhelming share of. Uh, people who go into government and who represent leadership uh, positions throughout society, they do represent the, the establishment in that way. Um, they are really important. Um, what happens, but, you know, it's like the Cambridge academic who was a woman who said that, um, you know, white lives don't matter last year. And, you know, she was able to say that very freely and nothing happened to her. She wasn't disciplined by the university you would think that would be a much more controversial. She obviously will have white students uh, being taught under her. So for her to say that white lives don't matter, and, and even one of them, I think, in the current um, climate has said that they wouldn't, they don't want to teach white students anymore. To me, that's far more problematic uh, than a statue of Cecil Rhodes. No, it's, it's, complaints about Cecil Rhodes, as I, I constantly reiterate, have existed ever since you know the time of Cecil Rhodes. Cecil Rhodes has never been an uncontroversial figure ever. Um, there have always been people who have been for or against or ambivalent about Cecil Rhodes, but that he's an important figure, no one can deny. Um, yes, no one can deny. And, and nobody, you know, everyone makes mistakes. And, and people who don't make mistakes don't make anything. And, and, and you know, Cecil Rhodes made and created a great deal in his lifetime. But he made mistakes. And he said silly things sometimes. But tell me one person that you know that hasn't made mistakes or said silly things sometimes. Um, and, and, you know, and then, they, they, you know, they're just that, that, that kind of person doesn't exist. Yeah, but I, I, I couldn't agree more with it. But I think it's also the, it's, I, I think what, what it underpins it is there's also a power play going on because it's really interesting. I, I do think, especially in the case of the American student, and often, and not always, and it's certainly not always the case, but there is a big movement coming out of America, certainly to come and dictate to other countries the way they should behave, the way they should, should do it. And I think England is a particularly easy target because of the close relationship, um, because in Europe, they're only, we mustn't forget, there are only two countries in Europe where, where English is the main language, Ireland and the UK. and and it's often fascinating that when you look, there are a lot of movements by American students who come over here. 
to change. But I imagine if the reverse were to happen, imagine if British students were to begin going over to America and say, well, you know, Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner. I can't, you know, if you go to the University of Virginia, which was founded and designed architecturally by Thomas Jefferson, if you said you have to remove every trace of Thomas Jefferson, because, you know, I as a British student find it shocking, you know, that there were, there were slave ownerships. You see, the, where where would this ever end? Yeah, well, let's, let's go over there and tear down the White House, you know, well, because look at all the presidents that were there before that were part of the slave trade. Let's just tear that thing down. And that's going to change, you know, the fact that the horrific slave trade happened. You're not going to change that horror, you know. No, but there's also a huge element of, of historicism and hypocrisy, which is what I often always find shocking. I mean, the slave trade was abolished here in Britain uh, almost a century, if not more, before the end of segregation in America. Uh, exactly. I mean, you, can't, you can't even begin to compare. Uh, it's not to say that racism hasn't or doesn't exist in any form in the UK. I'm sure it does. But for the Americans to come and lecture other countries, I mean, you know, America was founded on taking land from, you know, native tribes who were there through force. It's not an unknown story. It was, you know, a colossal amount of Native American Indians were killed in the campaigns to expand the territories to the West. But we all understand, or we should all try and understand, almost all of human history has been built on the backs of violence and of conquest and, you know, of the spread of diseases by, by, by colonial people. And not it's not just, I, I have to reiterate it, it's not to expunge white people as a group, which doesn't mean anything anyway. Um, you know, just to label anybody white as to, to say black, I would argue is inherently racist because they're not the same just because of skin color. But, you know, the all, all of human history, if you want to go back, every civilization that's founded, whether it was an Asian civilization, uh, you know, Greece, Rome, Western civilization, South American civilizations, you know, the Aztecs and the Mayas were having colossally bloody wars of conquest up and down Central and South America. Um, but, you know, do we go down and tear down Aztec or Mayan statues? No, it's there's a very particular movement which is coming from and which I think in many, many cases is coming from American academics and which is rather ironic and shocking given America's own racial history for them to come and lecture us and especially for for us, for example, to take down the symbol you know, of our monarchy and of our constitutional monarchy is rather a stretch, I believe, for an American student to come given America's own history. Uh, and, you know, why should we have to change all of our institutions and all of our culture? You know, it's gotten to the point where Gareth Southgate, the current coach of the English uh, national team, who is an ardent admirer of Churchill, you know, people are telling him, well, you must really calm down on your use of Churchillian quotes and inspiration because, you know, He's, you know, a pretty dodgy figure, uh, which seems absolutely insane. Um, yes, it's, it's, it's just sad that, you know, we're even giving any cognizance to these kind of uh, uh, actions that are taking place now. And these kind the, the, you know, the people who are insinuating or suggesting such things are getting such promotion and such, you know, media attention. And, uh, you know, one wonders why. One wonders what actually is the motivation of behind all this. A lot of people's minds. And um, anyway, Alan, thank you for another fascinating podcast. Um, I hope uh, for all our listeners you'll really enjoy it. And we can't wait to see you again soon for another episode of Long Walk to Nowhere podcast. We've all gone from Zimbabwe. Mm, Zimbabwe. 
I cry, falls in love with me.